So I still remember the day, uh, the moment when I woke up uh, for my wedding. Uh, it was a beautiful day. Uh, I mean, there's a lot going on. I knew uh, we had to get our hair done. We had to dress up. We had to take some photos. It was a really, really busy day. But the first thought that came to my mind, the moment I woke up that day was, I am so thankful that it's going to be finally done. Like, today is the big day. It, this is it. Um, I've been planning for this day for months at this point with uh, my, my wife, and, and it's been a lot of planning, a lot of discussions, and we're just glad that finally we can, uh, yeah, just have this ceremony before the Lord and before other people. I was also thankful because um, I was single for 30, 31 years, right? And so it's a big deal. As, as a kid, uh, you see the wedding photos of your parents, and you wonder, when is that day going to come? Right? I mean, they look nice, they look young, and you know, I, I wonder if there's actually going to be a day where I stand before the Lord and other people, and I kind of you know, commit myself to this other person and, and really complete this beautiful picture of marriage. So for 31 long years, I waited, I waited, and waited, and that day I woke up and I was like, man, it is finally here. Like, this is it. This is a big day. I'm, I'm moving on into this new phase of life. My life is never going to be the same. That's exactly what's going on in Joshua chapter 3. For hundreds and hundreds of years, really 400 plus years, the people of God, they heard this promise that, that God is going to lead his people to Egypt, from out of Egypt into this promised land. For 40 years, they've been wandering in this desert with this one hope, with one thought in mind. One day, we'll actually enter into the promised land. So for many, many years, they've been waiting for this very moment. They looked at the promised land from afar, but now, really, God is leading them into the promised land. It is finally here. They are moving on into a new phase of life. And we see in the end of chapter 2, there are two spies that return. Joshua sent out two spies into the promised land. They come back and they report, truly, the Lord God has given us all this land. And so the people of the land, they're afraid of us. Let's go in. Let's conquer it. They're going to melt before our eyes. That, that's what they say. And so with confidence, um, with excitement, in verse 1 of today's passage, we see that then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from, from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. So they're settling in this place right on the bank of, of the Jordan River. But there's a problem. Normally, this wouldn't be a problem because the Jordan River, generally speaking, throughout the year is a calm, peaceful, gentle river. But out of the, out of the year, about a month, just one time throughout the year, the Jordan River just completely changes into this crazy, um, fast-paced, dangerous River. If you know anything about the Jordan River, it starts really from um, Mount, Mount Hermon. And so this is a very high mountain, Mount Lebanon. It's also called like that. Um, it's high. It's about uh, 10,000 feet high. And so that's fairly high. And so throughout the winter, there's this snow that is built up on the mountain. And when it comes to springtime, which is harvest time for the Jews, that snow melts. And it at once, all that snow, it just goes into this one river. And because of that snow, 
everything changes about the Jordan River, the width, the depth, the speed. Before, it was really this gentle stream of water, and now it's like, you know, this massive body of water that's aggressively flowing. I mean, a couple of our youth students went to Great Falls, and you kind of get a sense uh, that, that, you know, the water there, there are parts where it might be still kind of calm and steady, but there are parts where the water is, is pretty, pretty strong, right? You don't want to mess around with that water. You don't want to go into that water. And so as the people of Israel, they're camping out in front of the Jordan River, this flooded river, and they're thinking to themselves, well, I want nothing to do with that water. I'm not, I'm not going in that water. This is not the way to go. And then the Lord God tells the people of Israel, wait, that's exactly the way that you're going to go. Yeah, you're going to go through this water. What you're going to do is you're going to have some of your priests carry this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to march into the water, and the water is going to part ways, and, and you're going to enter into the Jordan River. And you're going to come on the other side of the Jordan River, and you're going to enter into the Promised Land. And, and so the people of Israel are like, what is going on, Right? I mean, we're not going to wait for the water level to go down. We're not going to take a detour and go to a different side and hopefully go find a safer pathway into the promised land. No, God says, at this particular time, at this moment, we're going to cross this river. And isn't that how God leads us sometimes? I mean, he's the one who calls us to this journey of faith. He's the one who tells us, follow me, and, you know, everything is going to be okay. And then he leads you to nice places but there are times when he leads you to dead ends like this. And you're like, what is going on, God? I thought I was following you. I thought I was being faithful to you. And it's not particularly that you are sinning or you have been misled, but you really genuinely wanted to walk with the Lord. And so you're following God every single day. And you come to this place where your life is basically falling apart. That Before your eyes, you have this massive river. And God is telling you, cross it. This is the way into the promised land. You know, what's up with that? You know, why does God lead us in such a way? Why doesn't he lead us in just safe ways? Why does he allow hardships and difficulties in our lives when he is the one who called us and saved us and he's the one who's kind of leading us and, and guiding us? So what's going on? I think the, the first thing that we have to know in today's passage is this. If you want to successfully enter into the promised land and successfully walk in this journey of faith, the first thing that you and I have to remember is that you and I are utterly insufficient. We are utterly insufficient. We are inadequate. We are unable. For three days, just imagine what's going on in Israel's camp, right? They're looking at this body of water, this massive body of water, and they know that that's the pathway that they have to take. And they're looking at their children. They're looking at their flocks. They're looking at their possessions. And they're saying, no, there's no way. There's no way I'm taking my kids, my family into that water. There's no way I'm taking my animals and my possessions. No, that, that's a dead end right there. That just makes no sense whatsoever. And the reason why I think God sometimes make, allows us to camp around difficult things, leads us to difficult pathways, the reason why he allows hardships in our lives is so that we would hit this reality and come to realize that we are utterly insufficient when it comes to us following the plans of God. The purposes of God, the plans of God were never meant to, to be, be, be walked out alone. 
So God, at times, he leads you to the edge of these difficult circumstances, and he reminds you that on your own, there's no way you are overcoming this obstacle. There's no way you're overcoming this difficulty in life. Maybe that, that river for you is a health issue that, that's lingering, or maybe a health issue of someone that you love. Maybe you lost someone that you love. You lost someone that you deeply care about, and you don't know what, what's going to happen. You wonder why at this specific moment in time that God has taken away this person from you. Maybe it's a lingering sin in your life, and that just feels like a massive river that you can never overcome, that you can never have victory over a particular sin. Maybe it's your family, your parents. You feel like they will never change. Your family will never be peaceful. There will never be a sense of joy in your family, whatever it might be, as you are faithfully following the Lord, they are obstacles in your way, in your journey of faith. And if you haven't met those obstacles of faith yet, soon you will encounter those obstacles. But when you do, there's one thing that you always have to remember. Difficulties and hardships in life, they don't prove that God is not real. They don't prove that God does not exist or doesn't care about you. They prove that you actually need God. They prove that you alone, you are insufficient and unable to cross and fulfill all that God has planned for you. Now, Timothy, my son, he loves doing the monkey bar. Um, and he's four, he's, he's pretty good at it. You know, he's strong enough, but still I have to go under him to carry him, you know, all the way across the monkey bar, Right? And, and, and one day we were just playing in the playground, and, and I told him, you know, Timothy, especially when you go on the monkey bar, you know, just be careful, because I know you don't have the ability to cross that monkey bar. And Timothy's like, you know, no, you know, I have the ability. I'm strong enough, you know. Dad, I, I can take care of my own. Right? He's already a teenager now. Like, he wants his independence. He, he wants to do things on his own. So I, I try to persuade him. I tell him, no, that's not a good idea. I talk and talk and talk. And finally, what I do is I just allow him to go on the monkey bar. Why? So that he would know that he does not have the ability nor the strength to cross that monkey bar. Without that realization, Timothy might put himself in a more dangerous spot that he'd be overly confident and try other things that are really, really dangerous for his life. And so for me, I was like, okay, he might fall from that monkey bar, but I know it's not going to kill him. Well, hopefully it won't kill him. <laughs> and, and I know he's going to learn a lesson, never to, me- never to mess around uh, with the monkey bar until he's strong enough. And so many times, I think we become overly confident when life is going well, when things are really smooth, especially, I think, um, our, our youth students, by the grace of your parents, you have a steady, easy, pretty fruitful life that you say, I want this, and the next thing, your parents buy it for you. But I want you to, to know that, that there are times in your life where you're going to realize that you, yourself, your ability is insufficient for the work of God. It was never designed that way. God, he planned everything out in a way that you would walk this pathway of faith, trusting in him, relying on him every step of the way. So why does God lead us to dead ends sometimes and allow us to encounter difficulties, hardships? Why does he allow failures in our lives? Well, it's so that we would always remember and realize that apart from him, we are a nobody, really. And there's nothing in us that can lead us to the fruitfulness of life. But here's the good news. Although we are utterly insufficient in our lives, 
The good news is that God, his presence, and his power is sufficient. So that's the second point I want to make. Although we are utterly insufficient, God, his presence, and his power is utterly sufficient. There is a phrase that is that is seen in this chapter repeatedly, you know, 13 times. This chapter only has 17 verses. 13 times this phrase is mentioned, and that phrase is the Ark of the Covenant. What in the world is the Ark of the Covenant? I'm not talking about Noah and his Ark. No, this Ark is not a boat. It's literally a box. If you read Exodus uh, in the book of Exodus, God, he, as he's giving the law, he also tells the people of Israel, this is how you ought to design this tabernacle, the tent of meeting, a place where I will dwell. And so on the outer court, you have this space where people can give, bring sacrifices. And then you have this holy place where only the priest can enter in. And then once a year, you have a place where only the, uh, the highest priest can en- enter in. And that place is called the Holy of Holies. And it's literally a dark empty room. All that it has is this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. It's a box, a box that a couple people have to carry. Uh, it's pretty heavy. Uh, it's a wooden box, but on the outside, it's, it, you have gold, uh, so it's a fancy-looking box. And the Bible tells us in verse 3, the command to the people is this, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits, which, about, which is about half a, half, half a mile. Uh, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not Pass this way before. So God knows that the Israelites, they're stepping into the unknown. He knows that the Israelites have never went through this pathway before. And so what he says is, instead of you just simply going, I'm going to go before you. Send the Ark of the Covenant first. Whenever people thought of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, they immediately made a connection with the presence of God. Because when God designed this whole thing, he said, well, in the Holy of Holies, my presence is going to dwell. But where is it going to dwell? It's going to dwell upon the Ark of the Covenant. There's this thing called a mercy seat, a cover on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And God says, that is my throne. That is the place my presence will dwell. So whenever the people of God thought about the Ark of the Covenant, they don't just think of a fancy-looking box. They're thinking that is the presence of God. They didn't believe that, that that box itself was God, but they're believing that that is the promise that God is with us today. So a visible, physical, very tangible piece of evidence of God's presence was the Ark of the, Cov- Cov- Ark of the Covenant. Anytime there was the Ark of the Covenant, the Israelites, they were confident. They were courageous. They were like, we can mess with anyone because the Lord God is with us. And we see in today's passage that the phrase that is being used over and over again, the centerpiece of this story, what's driving this narrative is the Ark of the Covenant. It's not Joshua. It's not simply the priests. I mean, they did their part. But at the end of the day, Israel was able to cross this river because of the Ark of the Covenant. So this is what happened. The Ark of the Covenant was carried by the the Levitical priests. And the moment that they touched the river, it's really a miracle. What happened was the water stand still. Uh, The river was parted. And there was dry ground. But it wasn't that there was just dry ground. In verse 16, we're told that it was dry until this, up to this point, the city called 
uh, Adam. And, and if you look at the geography, this city is not five miles away. It's not 10 miles away. It is 19 miles away from this place. So what the Bible is telling us today is this. When God parted the Jordan River, it wasn't just this tiny little space where the Israelites have to make a single file line and they're like slowly kind of, kind of rolling in and, 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 and they're trying to cross this place. No, it was 90 miles of dry ground. Why? Because on the other side, you know that there's Jericho, the great fortress that was guarding the, the land of Canaan. And the people that were living in that place were so confident. And so they're looking out. They're looking at this people group called the Israelites, and there's about a million-plus people there. You know, they're all shepherds. They have flocks. They don't know how to fight. And, and so they're just laughing at them, especially that the river is flooded, and they're thinking, yeah, there's no way they're crossing that river. It's going to take some time. And then the next thing that they see is there, there's a couple people who are carrying this box into the river. And the next thing that they see is the river is dried up 19 miles. And the next thing that they see is there is a multitude of people just flooding the river, right? They are crossing the river left and right. It doesn't even have to be organized. It's like everyone all at once, they are marching into the promised land. And just you think about that picture. They're in the wall, behind the walls of Jericho. They're like terrified. They already know that the Lord God is pretty powerful. They know that the Israelites serve a mighty God. And looking at all that, now they are really afraid, and no wonder why they weren't able to do anything when the Israelites were marching around the walls of Jericho. They were terrified already. But we see that what made this possible, what unleashed the power of God was the Ark of the Covenant. As long as that Ark was in the river, the river was dry. And so here's an important lesson that we learn. The power of God is always connected to the presence of God. The power of God is always connected to the presence of God. A lot of times we tend to separate these two things. We love enjoying God's presence, but you know, in our daily life, what we really desire is God's power, right? God, give me a miracle so that I'll do well in this. Give me a miracle so these relationships will be repaired. Give me a miracle so that you know, these problems in my life will be fixed. And you're constantly praying for the power of God, but the Bible is making it very clear. From start to finish, the power of God is only accessed through the presence of God. That's exactly how Jesus rolled in his public ministry. I mean, yes, it's true that he is the son of God who has all power and authority, but at the same time, he did not count himself equal with God, it says in Philippians 2, but he humbled himself, being just like a man. So how was it that he was able to feed a crowd of 5,000 plus with, with, with a couple fish and, and a couple loaves of bread? How was it that he was able to walk on water? How was it that he was able to heal all these people and cast out demons? How was it that he was able to do all these signs and wonders? Well, there's only one reason that he was able to do that. He was filled with God's presence. And when there is God's presence, there is God's power. And you see the book of Acts when the people are waiting um, because Jesus told them, be a witness to the ends of the earth. You know, you make disciples in, the, in all the nations. And, and they're wondering how in the world, you know, us uneducated people, unexperienced people, how in the world do we do that? And Jesus tells them, wait. Because when you wait, the Holy Spirit is going to come down, empower you. And when that happens, 
you will be my witness to the ends of the earth. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit comes down, the people of God, God, they are empowered, and God's power is unleashed to the ends of the earth. God's saving work was unleashed when the presence of God was dwelling in the people of God. And why is this so important? That means if you really want to see God's power unleashed in your life, if you want to see chains broken, if you want to see dead people come back to life spiritually, if you want to see miracles take place in your life, if you want to see really breakthrough happen in your life, that you're struggling in your spiritual walk with God, that you're struggling in your relationships, you're struggling in your families, if you want to see breakthrough, what God is reminding you today is that the presence of God is the only way to unleash the power of God. So spend time with God's presence. Remind yourself of his presence day after day. And how do we do that? Well, it was easy for the Old Testament people because they had a box. I mean, as long as they're looking at the box, they're like, yeah, there's the presence of God. Where's our box? Like, what do we look at? And wouldn't it be nice if, you know, God, if he could have preserved all these words in the Bible, can't he preserve the Ark of the Covenant so that when we're down, when we're struggling, that we can actually see that Ark to be reminded of God's presence? Wouldn't it be nice if it's like kind of the, kind of the, uh, the torch uh, for the Olympics that you're passing this around, different churches are, you know, taking this in, and for a week you're kind of displaying it, and you're inviting your neighbors, and like, yay, come look at this Ark of the Covenant. It's beautiful. It's holy. Just try to touch it. You'll die. And, and, you, and wouldn't it be nice if you have something tangible and real and something visible like that? Well, you do. God says the old covenant is passed away. And by the way, the Ark of the Covenant was part of the old covenant. But I give you a new covenant. And your Ark is not going to be a box. The Ark of your covenant is going to be a person. And his name is going to be Jesus. You see, if you read the book of Jeremiah or other prophets, you see that people are struggling, even if they have the Ark of the Covenant in their midst. They're struggling to remain faithful to the Lord. And, and, and they go down this pathway of sin and, and they're living unholy lives. And, and you come to the New Testament. And instead of a box, God sends his one and only son, Jesus. And as he is living a holy life, he's demonstrating the power of God and the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was able to part the river and was able to lead people into the promised land, Canaan. The new covenant, the new Ark of the Covenant, who is Jesus Christ, he's able to part death. He's able to part sin. He's able to lead you not just to a promise, physical promised land, but to eternal life. When we were still sinners, Jesus died for our sins he demonstrated really the goodness of God to us. And we have seen God's glory in Jesus Christ. And so if you are ever, ever wondering, what piece of evidence do I have to be reminded of God's presence? You cling on to Jesus. Just like the people were looking at this ark, desperately waiting for this ark to do something. You desperately wait and look on Jesus. You meditate on his word. You wait on him, and every single day when you're struggling in your life, you're reminded that I need to look at Jesus because he is my Ark of the Covenant. When I'm looking at him, I see God's presence, and when I see God's presence, it's going to unleash God's power. So always remember God's presence is inseparable with God's power. The Israelites didn't have a whole lot of things, but they really only had one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. 
but that one thing was more than enough for them. So how do we respond to a text like this? I think, um, you know, knowing that God does everything, that he's the one who leads, he's the one who does all the signs and wonders and the miracles, and he's the one who really defeats our enemies. How do we respond to a text like this? And that's where I want to make our third point. We must consecrate our lives for the Lord. We must consecrate our lives for the Lord. Look at verse 5. It says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So God promises the people that I'm going to do something crazy out of this world, miraculous, wonderful. What you need to do is consecrate yourself. What does that word mean? Well, at my house, um, I don't know if you guys have this. Uh, I have multiple um, dish sponges. Like, you guys don't have that? It's okay. When I was your age, I only thought you just use one dish sponge. Uh, so you kind of wash the dirty dishes, and then you wash the sink. You wash other unnecessary dirty stuff. And right, that's what you do, right? No, you don't do that, right? Especially when you have a baby. You have a designated sponge that you use that only to, to clean out the bottles and the different items that, that the baby might use. And so that item is consecrated. That item is set apart for a specific purpose. The word consecrated, it means to be set apart, to be holy, but for a specific purpose. A lot of times when we think about holiness, we think about moral purity. We just simply think about clean, right? We need to be clean before the Lord just to feel good about ourselves. But what the Bible tells us is, no, I want you to set yourselves apart. I want you to be holy so that your sole purpose in life will be being used by God so that you'll be set apart for the purposes of God. There were different items in the tabernacle, in the temple, that the Bible says they were consecrated. And what that means is if you used a knife for a sacrifice, right, it was separated from any other item that you, you use. You wouldn't take that knife from the temple and kind of go home and, and, and make sashimi. No, you would leave that at the temple because that Knife is specifically dedicated for the glory of God in that temple for the purpose of worship. What God is telling you when he says, be holy, it's not just because he thinks you're filthy and dirty. It's because he's trying to set you apart for one purpose and one purpose alone. And that is for his glory, for his purposes, for you to declare his name among the nations. Your holiness has a purpose, and that means holiness matters. Purity matters. There's nothing that takes away the joy of our, 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 walk, of our salvation more than sin. And so how do we respond to God? Well, we respond by, through holiness. We say every single day, God, no matter what's in my way, no matter what obstacle I need to face, I am going to set myself apart today. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus, my Ark of the Covenant. I'm taking a leap of faith. I'm going to step into the waters because I know, God, this is what you promised. I don't understand everything. I don't see everything, yet I trust you, God, because your presence is more than enough for me. Your power is more than enough for me, and I know that although I am insufficient and I am unable, I know that you you are able. I know that you are sufficient. I know that you are all that I need. If all that I have in my life is you, God, I have all that I need. Is that your confession today? If not, then you might not be living a consecrated life, but rather a life where you're using 
your life for different items, different purposes. And because it's being used all these different places, just like you can't use a dish a sponge that's used all over the place for a baby, baby, baby items, like really God, he, 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 he can't use you. It's not that he doesn't want to unleash his power through you. No, it's that it's through holiness that, that God unleashes his power because when we are holy and set apart, the presence of God is able to dwell in us and we're able to experience all of the fullness of God. And with that, we're able to display God's power in our everyday life. So where are you today on your journey of faith? Are you just simply camping before this Jordan River, wondering what's going to happen? Are you overwhelmed with the difficulties of life, with all the troubles and hardships of life, and you're wondering, what in the world am I going to do? Remember that you are insufficient, but God, his power and his presence is sufficient. Are you really relying on your own strength, saying that I don't need people, I don't need the church, I don't need brothers and sisters in Christ. No, I can take care of my own. Well, you'll soon hit a dead end and realize that there's nothing that you can do to fulfill God's purpose but to cling on to who he is and trust in his promises. Are you setting your life apart for the Lord? I'm not just talking about are you being clean in life. I'm saying is your purpose in life is to consecrate your life for the glory of God, for the purposes of God. When you devote to him, then you'll see wonders and miracles in your life. And maybe you might not see a river parting in such a way, but you'll see a greater miracle. That you'll see a dead person come back to life spiritually. That you'll see lost people be found. Some people are so amazed that the water will be still for us and all that we have to do is consecrate ourselves now and enjoy the journey. So follow him, trust in him today. Um, and, and, and every single day, unleash the power of God through the presence of God. Amen? Let's pray.